Welcome to episode 66 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's happening, Jesse? Right now... I'm pretty stoked about having a conversation of theology with you, and I'm drinking some coffee called Java Nagila. Nice. (laughs) How do you feel about that? That's pretty awesome. (laughs) I'm a big fan of cleverly named coffees and beers. Yeah, it's like a mint chocolate coffee. It's all right, but I think it's worth it just for the pun. That is not at all what I would have imagined the flavor of that coffee would be based on the name. Give me, what would you think the flavor would be? I don't know, something spicy, like nutmeggy i don't know yeah i guess that's fair i don't know it's not it's not bad it's not bad we're all about coffee puns in this house i don't know how that happened but it just <laughs> happened so there you go how you doing i'm good i'm good it's good lord's day we got some bible study later on today um we got our first snowfall of the season like sizable one we got like six inches last night so i was up at 5 30 this morning shoveling which was awesome Nice. I think as far as our history on this podcast, we're required by law to disclose when we received snow, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we've <laughs> there's like two seasons on the Reformed Brotherhood. There's the it's beautiful, everything's great season, and there's the Tony spent two hours shoveling the entire church season. <laughs> and we've entered the Tony spent the entire world you know, shoveling snow season. It's a good time of year. It is. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It is the most wonderful. <laughs> Speaking of wonderful things, is that what you're affirming this week or you got something else? I've got something else. It's a little bit um, pedestrian, but that's okay. Oh, I love this. So I'm affirming mint.com. Oh, nice. And, yes. And this is that's my jam. something that you actually recommended to me uh, a while ago when I was asking you some financial questions. And when I first started using the website, it was kind of like just an online version of like Quicken, which was great, but whatever. And um, I've since gone back to it and they've like beefed up their bill pay feature. So you put in all your accounts and even like your, you log into your Comcast account and it automatically allows you to pay your bills through the site. So it's it's just a lot simpler to manage your finances. Um, So check it out. I mean, it's, it's totally unrelated to theology, but it's something that I've really come to appreciate. Man, that's legit. We should get some sponsorship for that. We should. It is a great site though. I totally agree. How about you? So this week, I'm going to get a little more serious. I want to affirm worship songs that are explicit in their communication of worship to Christ. I just have been on this kick recently of being able to revel in some really well-written pieces of music, yeah, lyrically at least. And i am kind of been feeling like, man, ambiguous stuff is just such a waste sometimes. So a lot of that is hymnody, traditional hymnody, of course, but there's a lot of great contemporary stuff that's just explicit. So I'm just affirming belting out some stuff that is like unapologetically directed vertically at worshiping God. None of this, like the song could be about a dog or a significant other or none of that. Yeah. Just make it clear. Just make it clear. That's good stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah. You have any denials? I do. So um, before I have my denial, I want to say, I'm very thankful for my job. I enjoy my job, and I'm grateful that God has enabled me to provide for my family. But I am denying having to do 200% of a full-time job. So we have three um, clinical secretaries in my department, and one of them is out on medical leave. And almost all of her work has now been shifted to me. So I'm literally doing two full-time employees' worth of a job. And it's just like my brain is totally fried. But I, I'm appreciative of my job. I don't want to be ungrateful, but it's definitely a frustration. That's intense. Yeah. How about you? That's a lot of transplants or whatever you're coordinating there. Yeah. It's, I wish it was more transplants, but it's actually just a lot of like letters that I have to write and like paper that I have to scan. It's nothing exciting. <laughs> that does sound lame. Yeah. It's really bad. Well, then I'm just going to complain too, if that's okay. It's totally fine. All right. So here's what I'm denying. Having to change a windshield wiper blade. Have you ever done this? Yes, it's the worst. Oh my gosh. I was totally unprepared. And I just want to admit to everybody, to you, to anybody else who's listening, that I've got a couple degrees and I can't figure this thing out. I still haven't done it yet, actually, because I've been on YouTube 
<laughs> uh, first of all, I, when we get, went to the store, uh, and this is stupid, I didn't even realize, didn't even dawn on me that not only are all blades not the same, but you got to look up your car. So yeah. we did that whole thing, got the right one. And then I come home and I can't figure this thing out. And then I, uh, by looking at the, the wiper that's on my car right now, then I open up the package and there's like four pieces in yeah, this thing. There's like and adapters. the directions on the back are awful. Yeah. So I actually spoke to my father about it and was like, have you ever changed one? And even he was like, and he's a very like gifted, skilled man when it comes to stuff like this. He's like, no, I just, I've done that a couple of times. I just have somebody else do it now. He's like, one time I changed it and it like flipped off and I had to like pull over. <laughs> <laughs> so if he can't do it, there's no hope for me. So I got to figure this out, but I appreciate, of course, modern technology and having wiper blades. It's fantastic, <laughs> but I'm so shocked at how difficult this is. Yeah, you need a like PhD from like Kaplan University on wiper blade changing mechanisms. I'm seriously about to enroll. Like, there was a part of me halfway through this process that was like, seriously, eternal functional subordination is way easier to understand <laughs> than how to change out this blade. Yeah, I I think we're pretty lucky because ours is pretty straightforward, but like they come with like a bunch of adapters. And you have to like hook the adapters together to make the right, like make a new adapter. It's pretty bad. It's crazy. Yeah. Do you have like the, the hook kind or the pin kind? We have the hook kind, which is the easy kind. You just clip it in. Oh, I mean, I even I that's complicated, kind. but the hook is the easiest of the different kinds. I know that somebody is probably super bored at this point with this conversation, but here's my challenge to you. If you're feeling like it's easy, go out and try to change your blades right now. <laughs> Send us <laughs> a video. try it. Go try it, then send us an email. I'm telling you, I deny that straight up. So I have a challenge for our audience that I would like to bring up. And you and I talked about this after we were recording last week. And I think it's a great Oh, yeah, idea. this is great. So my wife and I watched the uh, Christmas classic uh, Elf with Will Ferrell. And the first thing is, if you watch that movie this year, which everybody should watch this movie, it's kind of a modern Christmas classic. But pretend that Will Ferrell is being really sarcastic and making fun of the elves the entire movie, and it's a whole different movie. But the challenge that I want to issue to Christians listening to this podcast is when someone says to you, like, Merry Christmas or Season's Greetings or somehow um, recognizes that this is a special time of year, react to them the way that Buddy the Elf would. And what I mean by that is with just <laughs> totally at face value and with complete and utter joy. So the example I want to bring up is there's this example. The movie came out like 15 years ago, so spoiler alert, I guess. But he is um, he's an elf from the North Pole, or he's a human that was raised by elves at the North Pole, and he comes back to New York. And he ends up in like a um, department store that has like a winter wonderland section for the kids. And the manager comes by and he goes to announce that Santa's coming to visit and Buddy freaks out because he's so in love with Santa. He just loves Santa. So he like screams Santa. So next time someone says Merry Christmas, first act as though they're actually saying like Merry Christmas, like they really believe the reason for the season. And then react with appropriate joy because I think so often someone will say like Merry Christmas and they're like, oh yeah, Merry Christmas. And like... <laughs> we talked right. about joy last week, but we talk about like this is the happiest time of the year. This is the most wonderful time of the year. But then we act like it's nothing but stressful garbage. So just that's sure. my challenge. Don't be stupid about it. Don't be corny. But just react as though they're being honest. They really do want to wish you Merry Christmas and react with the appropriate joy. Let's see that's what well happens. Said. And if you have stories to tell us about what happens when you try this, Shoot us an email, give us a voicemail, whatever. We would love to hear how this little experiment goes. Yeah, hit us up. I'm going to try this. You and I talked about it. I tried it a little bit this week, and it was exceptional. Exceptional. <laughs> the responses, because I really, after you said this, I really did feel convicted. Only could like the secular world be saying something to us as Christians that is meaningful, and we can make it seem like the worst thing yeah. possible. Yeah, for sure. So it's time to flip that around. So, Jesse... That has nothing to do with our topic tonight. What is our topic not, tonight? Because it gives us an excuse to pull out our sweet, smooth segues. Yes. Go ahead. So we are going to talk tonight about the Lord's Supper. Boom. I'm excited about this. So um, we're not going to take really the normal approach to this. We're going to go over the historical stuff and, and kind of get the base laid down. But there's been a little bit of a brouhaha going on on the internet um, that... 
is a little strange, and I had never really thought about it. Um, I'd never really thought about why this might be controversial, but we're going to talk about the mode of the Lord's Supper. So mode of baptism is sometimes a hot topic um, when you're talking about baptism, but mode of the Lord's Supper is not usually an issue. But, you know, I was reading up on this a little bit this week, and the mode of the Lord's Supper, the mode of taking communion, was actually a major um, objection that the Reformers lodged against the Roman Catholic Church, which was a little surprising to me, and I never really thought about it that way. Have you ever thought about that, or did you ever notice that? I haven't thought about it in the kind of historical sense, but it has come up in my mind only because I've been to certain churches that do subscribe to kind of different modes okay. or their normative practice is to use different modes. And I used to attend a church that would sometimes switch it up unexpectedly, yes. which will always just, it kind of drew attention to the fact that we were changing it up and it would be on special occasions or when the logistics were different, we need to move things along. Right. So that I'm sure other people have experienced this. So I'm kind of... Excited to get into it. So before we get into some of the technical stuff, what does the um, what's the practice at your church on the Lord's Lord's Day? Uh, how often do you do the Lord's Supper, and then when you do, like what's it look like? Right. So our practice is to do it usually on the first Sunday of the month, and we just do it once monthly. And it is to have a separation between the bread, which is normally for us some kind of like wafer or cracker, and then to do grape juice separately and it's distributed by the deacons generally or by the elders rather and of course it's like passed out and then we all partake together so kind of your i would say that's kind of like a common evangelical style is that fair that is fair and and you'll find that um that method or that mode is predominant in kind of independent um usually baptist churches um right and so there's a lot of reasons for it um, that's the same mode as you know that we have here um, at the church we're at now. When I was in Minnesota, we had a similar thing, except rather than the element being distributed, everyone would get in a line and kind of file through, and you would get the bread, and you would get the cup, and you would eat them as individuals, but you would be eating them in the context of everyone else. And maybe you'd hold okay. on to it, and you'd go pray first, or maybe you'd just take it and sit right. down. Um, and then, obviously, there's some churches where you know, you're given a little cup or some churches where you drink out of a common cup, right? Um, have you ever right. been to a church where they use a common cup? Yes. Okay. It's a little weird the first time. It is a little, I was going to say, I saw you smile when you asked that. And that's exactly what I was thinking. It's kind of like you, it's kind of like uh Matt Butts, please forgive this metaphor. It's kind of like going to Alabama. You want to know what you're getting yes. into before you get there. Yeah. So it's nice to have a heads up on that. But if you're not used to it, it's a little strange, especially like in the cold flu season. Yeah. A little strange, right? Yeah. Was was the common cup when you did it, was it grape juice or was it wine? It was wine. It was wine. So it's actually a myth that the alcohol content in the wine <laughs> is enough to do anything about the germs. Right. Exactly. Uh, the wiping of the cup that they usually do, you know, they wipe the lip of the cup for you. Yes. That actually does more to remove the germs um, than the alcohol content does. Right. It would make no sense if there was enough alcohol in wine to actually kill germs. It would taste like rubbing alcohol. Yeah. Well, and also the germs are on the outside of the cup where your bottom lip touches, not on the inside. Right. I mean, they're on the inside right. too, but. Right. So we'll we'll get into questions about mode a little bit later, but I wanted to talk through kind of the major historical um, positions on the Lord's Supper. So normally when you talk about the Lord's Supper, you're kind of talking about the theology behind what's happening. And we're going to do that a little bit, but that's not going to be the main focus of our conversation. So um, obviously the Roman Catholic Church has a practice that they call transubstantiation. Um, and that goes to the idea that um, it's an Aristotelian category where you have the substance of a thing, which is like the fundamental essence, right? When we talk about the Trinity, we talk about one substance. And then we talk about accidents, which are kind of like external attributes. So you might have something that's the substance of an apple. And the accidents of an apple would be things like, depending on the kind of apple, either red or green. It might be sweet or tart. Um, But whatever it is, those the things that you experience with your senses, those are the accidents. And usually the substance and the accidents cannot be um, kind of messed with. Something that has a particular substance always inevitably comes with a different or with a a given set of accidents. Largely from Thomas Aquinas, um, who is an Aristotelian philosopher and theologian, 
he drew this distinction between substance and accidents, and he said that the miracle that's taking place in the Lord's Supper is that the substance of the bread and the wine was being transformed into um, into the Son. So it's not just the Son's body, it's his, his human nature, his body, his human spirit, his whole person is being sort of infused into this and transformed. So the substance of the bread and the substance of the wine becomes the whole person of Christ. The accidents, however, don't change. So when you taste it, you're eating flesh and blood. You're actually eating Jesus, like in the realest, most literal sense. Um, but it doesn't taste like a human person. There's right. nothing about the accidents that would change. Now, there's some crazy stories in the Middle Ages before this theology was worked out of people who would drink the wine, um, which is probably a little apocryphal, and we'll talk about why, but they would drink the wine and realize that it was human blood. It tasted like human blood. Um, so there was some weird stuff going on. Obviously, I, I think those are probably made up after the fact, and mostly because in the Middle Ages, the average person in the pew wasn't ever drinking the wine. Um, but that's kind of the Roman Catholic view. And hands down across the board, the Protestant, um, the Protestant different groups, Lutherans, um, the Reformed, the Anabaptists, everybody across the board rejected that view. Um, and they right. said there's, there's absolutely no biblical foundation for this. This category of substance and accidents is not a biblical category. It may not be contrary to the Bible, but we have no reason to think that this is what's going on. Um, and right. it was literally just a, a way to try to um, articulate what they thought was going on, um, but it wasn't based on scriptural acts of Jesus at all. So then the Lutherans still wanted to affirm this idea that the body of Christ, the, the real literal physical body and soul of Christ was present in the supper. Um, and we were really genuinely feasting on that body and soul. And so they hate the term, but it came to be known as uh, consubstantiation. And what, what that means is that the body and blood and the soul of Jesus Christ is present with the elements, but the elements themselves do not change. So it's right. kind of like they get added to it. Um, so you're still eating bread, but along with that bread in some sort of metaphysical way that's not available to our senses, you're, you're also eating the body and blood of Jesus. You make you with me so far? Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, the Catholic view in its literal understanding is kind of bloody and weird because yeah. it's a little bit gruesome, actually, because they're believing that that transformation is going to occur like the moment of the priest's enunciation of the words and that basically the mass, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, has a sacrificial nature where Christ is the same victim in the Eucharist as he was on the cross. Right. So there's like a lot of also strange theological underpinnings there. Which separate these these things, which I think, which I think is what where we're moving. Right. Um, but it, it's really strange, and even the the Lutheran view. Like I love to speak with my Lutheran brothers and sisters about this, because I know that they dislike the term consubstantiation right. because it seems like it's a derivative of transubstantiation, which they would adamantly deny. Right. But at the same time, it's kind of like this midway point of saying it is significant because I think Luther believed that the words "This is my body," "This is my blood." must be interpreted literally as the teaching that Christ's body and blood right. were present in the sacrament, like you said, in, with, under. Right. But they're in the elements of the bread and wine in a different way altogether. They're not just representative. They're actually a presence there, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so just to back up a little bit, um, the the reason that the Roman Catholic Church had to come up with this this theology of transubstantiation was because of the unbiblical notion, and I'll say anti-biblical notion, that Christ was being re-sacrificed in the Mass. Right. right so if if the thing that the priest is offering up to God was um, not really actually the body of Christ, then it was sort of a um, it was an empty sacrifice. And so they've got in place that the body is really present on the altar. And now they have to figure out, but all of us can taste that this is still just, it just tastes like bread. So then they had to kind of right. back into it and figure out, well, how do we explain that? Um, I, I'm not trying to impute motives. I know it sounds like I'm, I'm trying to like make, paint them as like some nefarious scheme. That's not what happened. Most of these people, Thomas Aquinas, most of these people were good, um, were people who were trying their best to account with the tradition that had been handed down to them. Um, even Luther, in some senses, 
was still operating under some of these Catholic understandings that the body had to be really physically present in the supper in order to accomplish what he believed it was accomplishing. Right? Right. And I think we can appreciate that this is complex. Yeah. Both in its breadth and scope of trying to understand. And everybody is trying to reconcile the words of Jesus himself teaching about his body and blood and feasting on those things. And not, and like you said, making sure that this doesn't become just kind of, kind of empty rote sacrifice right. or just a remembrance. It's, it's way more than that, but it can't be too much because then it gets really weird. And for me, the weirdest, of course, is the Roman Catholic understanding yeah. because th- that understanding, like you and I think I've talked about either off the podcast or on, ha- leads you into really strange questions like if the bread really is the body of Christ, how long is it the body in my system before it's actually metabolized right. out? You have to address those kind of questions. Yeah. And the Catholics do. And that's something that you and I don't really, I don't think, wrestle with when we take the Lord's Supper. No. Uh, because it, it can get strange. Although some of those thoughts do actually work their way into um, other streams of thinking. So um, I remember, you know, when I was in Minnesota, I was part of a Lutheran church. And um, it was unthinkable that you would throw the leftover elements in the garbage or, or oh, yeah, anything we should get, like that. We should get into this. Um, yeah, th- this is weird. And so like the Roman Catholic uh, Church, there's actually like a special drain in um, the back of most Roman Catholic churches that goes straight into the ground. And the only thing it's ever used right. for is um, disposing of whatever leftover wine. Usually they just they just slam it. So sometimes your priest needs a ride home because there's too much wine (laughs) left over. I mean, that really happens. That does Um, happen. But there's a special drain. And if you watch after, um, I wouldn't, I actually don't advocate going to Roman Catholic mass, even just to observe. But if you were to go to a Roman Catholic mass and observe, there's actually like a special cloth that when they're eating, the priest eats over the cloth. And then when he's done eating, he kind of like folds in a particular way and makes sure the crumbs fall into the common cup right. and then drinks the cup. So the way that you handle the elements both before, during, and after the actual administration of the supper is affected by all of this theology. A lot of Baptist exactly. churches, there's extra bread. You just take it home and you eat it or you right. throw it in the garbage or you give it to the birds or whatever you do. Um, but I remember I remember the first time I saw that happen, right? I went to a Lutheran church and then I went to a Baptist college and I remember the first time we ever did communion at like a retreat. And they just threw the extra bread away and I was like, what are you doing? And they're like, you just throw it away. It's just right. bread. And I was like, "Right? well, it is just bread, but there's... For, in my mind, there was some sort of like there's there's a gravity to it that it deserves something more than that. And that, that in a sense, is kind of a hangover from Roman Catholic theology. It is, yeah. So once we get out of Roman Catholic theology and we get into what could be considered kind of reformed um, sacramentology proper, what happened is Zwingli um, was developing his Reformation, you know, we mentioned a couple weeks ago, I think, independent of Luther. So he had these ideas that were running parallel to Luther's thought but was not influenced by Luther's thought, at least initially. And what Zwingli, Zwingli came to the conclusion that if we really take the, the declaration or the, the definition of Chalcedon seriously, then it makes no sense to say that Christ's body is present in the Eucharist because it, has, it would have to take on the attribute of omnipresence or ubiquity is what the Lutherans like to call it. But even on another level, like it have to take on the divine attribute of invisible. Right, We can't see it. That's one of the hallmarks of the Lutheran view, is there's nothing present to the senses that would indicate that this is anything besides bread and wine. Right. But a human body is present to the senses. So there has to be some sort of transformation of Christ's humanity such that it's available in a way not available to the senses. Um, so Zwingli really went that direction. And... It's not quite accurate to say that what's what came to be known as, as the Zwinglian memorial view is accurate of Zwingli's view, but the tradition coming out of Zwingli um, in kind of the the Swiss Reformation um, and into some of the Baptists, Anabaptists particularly um, circles that were influenced by him was this strict memorial view that all the all that's going on in the Lord's Supper is a remembrance, a bare remembrance. There's no nothing spiritual going on besides what is spiritually happening in the hearts and the words of the people participating. Um, so that's kind of what becomes known as the memorial view. A lot of Baptist churches hold that. 
ironically, the more reformed Baptist churches, the 1689 churches, um, and churches that are, you know, Baptist churches that are influenced by Puritanism, especially, um, they don't, they don't hold that. Right. right. And I wouldn't, that wouldn't be my perspective. I don't know if that's yours. It's definitely not mine. And so that, that leads us to, um, what might be kind of called the Presbyterian or, um, really it's kind of Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper. Um, and what Calvin, Calvin's view is very complex, but basically what Calvin said is that the elements that you have in your hand, the bread, the wine, it's just bread and it's just wine. And when you eat it, you're just eating bread and you're just eating wine. But when you do that, these are signs. They're not just symbols. They're signs of a greater reality. And so when you participate in that sign by eating the bread and by drinking the wine and you participate by faith, you not only are participating in the sign, but you're participating in that which the sign signifies. Right. So the, the, in, in communion, um, and in baptism, it's the same basic framework, but in communion, what's being signified is the covenant faithfulness of Christ that he bore the covenant curses by being broken for our sins. And then um, by kind of extension, your the resurrection in his vindication is also being participated. So in baptism, just to sort of sidetrack to baptism, because it's actually a little easier to explain from, from this perspective, you know, in, in the scriptures, it says that in baptism, we are buried with Christ. And when we come out of the water, we're raised to new life. Well, we're not drowning to death and being resurrected. But when we go into the water, in faith, we participate in Christ's death because that's what Christ, that's what's being signified. And then when we come out of the water, um, we are participating in the resurrection because that's what's being signified. So there are other things right. going on in, in baptism, but that kind of gives you a flavor for what um, sort of the Reformed perspective does with sacraments in general, with Calvin's view. And you can see once you get to Zwingli and Calvin how these guys are pushing against that Roman Catholic tradition, starting with how they understand faith, once again, as the linchpin of belief. So Zwingli believed that Christ was present in and through the faith of the participants, but that this presence wasn't tied to the elements and dependent entirely on the faith of the communicants. So he's moved all way beyond that to say, basically, it is just symbolic right. commemoration. And then Calvin is, Calvin's kind of got a buffet on this one, wouldn't you say? Like he's he's picking... He's supporting this idea, but he's choosing, he's going from all over and saying, you know, there's a real reception of the body and the blood of Christ and supper, but it's only in a spiritual manner. Right. So the sacrament is a real means of grace. It is a channel by which Christ communicates himself to us. And so Luther and Calvin agreed that communion with a present Christ who actually feeds believers with his body and blood is what makes the sacrament. But the question between them was the manner in which Christ's body exists and is given to believers. Right. So there's like a lot of undertones here. It's not just about, well, what does it mean to have these elements in front of you? It's also about, well, what do we receive? What is our participation in the Lord's Supper like? And that, I think, is something that we don't often wrestle through. I think a lot of people, including myself for a long time, thought the Lord's Supper is about everything I do right. in the sense that I am. It's asymmetric. There's certain things I want to participate in. And I didn't even for the longest time realize that there's a receiving that also happens. And depending on which view you have here will really impact how you approach the table. Right. So to con by way of contrast, in the Roman Catholic view, what the sacrament does, it does automatically. Right. So right. everybody who eats a consecrated um, piece of bread and drinks consecrated wine, if it was consecrated properly and all of the pieces are in place, um, everybody who eats it receives the same thing. So if I go to a Roman Catholic church and I eat the body of Christ, I'm eating the same exact thing as the person next to me. And that is the actual physical body of Christ, right? Now, what ha what that body of Christ does to me is in part based on my faith, right? If I'm in a state of grace, then that body communicates more grace to me. If I'm not in a state of grace, I'm not actually sure what they would say it does, but it does something different. It's not effective right. for salvation for those who are not in a state of grace. Exactly. In Lutheran circles, it's not all that different, right? You know, time to go back to baptism and communion. Real grace is being conveyed. And as long as you don't stop it from being conveyed, it's being conveyed. So when a, when a Lutheran um, baptizes their baby, that baby is being regenerated because the baby can't not be regenerated. The baby can't get in the way of being regenerated. 
and so that babies are generated. And something similar is happening in the Lord's Supper, that the grace that's conveyed in the Lord's Supper by feasting on the physical body of Christ is being conveyed unless you stop it. When we get to the Calvin to Calvin's view, we have to understand this distinction between uh, between the the substance of the covenant and the administration of the covenant. Right. right? And we talked about this in the baptism episode, or I I did at least. Is um, the administration of the covenant are the outward signs, right? The signs that are being applied or administered. That's the administration of the covenant. So um, a person can participate in the administration of the covenant and never participate in the substance of the covenant. The substance of the covenant is Christ, right? It's not something else. It's Christ himself is the substance of the covenant. So when I take the administration of the covenant, the, the Lord's Supper, when I eat the bread and I drink the wine, if I have faith, then I'm participating in both the administration, which is the outward sign, and the reality of the substance of the covenant, which is Christ. And that's where yep. Calvin's view, I think, is really, um, I think it's right on, but I think that's where he turns a corner, is that yeah, because we're united to Christ by faith, we in these in these elements are united to Christ further because of our participation by faith. Not automatically, not ex opera operato, not any, whatever the, you know, whatever the Lutherans say to say not ex opera operato, but still basically that, um, which just means by the working of the work. It means automatically. Um, Calvin is saying, no, it's not automatic, but it is real. And I think that's right. the main distinction that needs to be laid out. And, and to be honest, Calvin's view in some senses is still a mystery to me. I'm still trying to get my head around it because it's, it's nuanced. Um, but it's also like really straightforward, right? Yes. Um, if I see a stop sign, right, I'm driving my car, I see a stop sign. I'm participating in the administration of that stop sign just by seeing it, by the fact that it's there. If I don't stop, I'm not participating in the substance of that stop sign because it hasn't done anything, right? But when right. I stop, I don't want to say by faith, but when I exercise my will to stop, then I've participated in the substance of what that sign signifies. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does. That's exactly what Calvin is doing. Right. That's a good metaphor, once again, because Calvin, I think, does the best job of preserving appropriate Trinitarian theology in the Lord's yeah, Supper. Exactly. So, so he's going to hold that while Christ is bodily in heaven, which we would all agree, and that's important in and of itself, mm-hmm. that distance is overcome by the Holy Spirit, who's going to vivify believers with Christ's flesh. So the Supper is a true communion with Christ, who feeds us with his body and blood, but at the same time, it preserves the fact that Jesus is an actual person who occupies a physical space that is not in the same way, in the same realm as we are when we're at the table. And yet, through the Holy Spirit, we are being united to him in sharing that meal in a way that's no less real. Exactly. If that makes sense. And that's what makes it complicated, but also I think that's what makes it really beautiful. It, It doesn't kind of... The Roman Catholic approach to me is a bit like a shotgun. It's just trying to take everything out because it seems like, well, this is the most literal translation. And so therefore we're going to move forward with this. And it it doesn't, it doesn't come up against, well, it doesn't come up against, well, the other passages in the scripture that speak to who Christ is and try to synthesize what even Jesus speaks about in his own sermons about his body and his blood. So I think that the Calvin Calvinistic view is, is really beautiful actually. And I think part of its beauty is that, there is a mystical, and by that I just mean mysterious, portion to it that should be present. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we can't draw a hard line between sort of the um, Anabaptist Zwinglian um, proclamation view, right? So that view is basically there's nothing going on in the sacrament because all it is is us proclaiming something, right? Paul says that you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, they're saying that's all it is that's all baptism is for them. It's, it's a personal statement of faith. It's an outward sign that we make to tell usually the world, maybe at best we tell God something about our faith by being baptized. And the same thing happens in communion. It's not as though that element is absent from Calvin or from the reform view, right? So yeah, when we take communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, but it's a proclaiming that is efficacious, so we proclaim the promise that the Lord is coming. We proclaim the promise that this is the covenant cup of the Lord's blood. Um, and that has a real effect in the hearing of the elect. So it's not, it's not just a proclamation. It's not just a participation. It's got to be both to have a fully orbed reformed view. Right. 
that I think that again is the what makes it really distinct and really beautiful. I feel like we should talk about the proclamation point for a second because you know Paul what we always quote is that Paul saying for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we proclaim or preach the Lord's death as we celebrate the supper. So in some ways I almost dislike the word communion for the Lord's Supper because we've taken a verb and made it a noun. And sometimes when we do that, we lose, when that noun becomes so rigid in our minds, we lose what it means in the active sense. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And so proclaiming is part of this. Like this is the message, this is the sermon that we preach to ourselves and to those around us when we come to the table. So that statement alone reveals for me like a very important aspect of the supper, which is the connection between the word and the sacrament. And those should always be tightly coupled. And I've seen that in some churches, they don't get tightly coupled. And so what happens is we have this disconnection for why we're doing the things that we're doing and what they actually mean, which is what you just said. Like, is this a means of grace or are we just celebrating grace that's already been given? And all those things get clarified when we make sure that the word and the sacraments always go together. I like that, like St. Augustine always called this, the the communion and the Lord's Supper and baptism, a visible right. word. I really liked yeah. that, that it was not like disassociated from what we've been taught, but a specific thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so to think, think about what a proclamation is, right? So in our language, in our context, a proclamation kind of ends up just being like a statement that you make. But when you think about the way that the word uh, euangelion or the gospel is used in the New Testament, right? It was it was when the messenger would come back from the battlefront to announce to the um to the people that the war had been won. Well, that person has to be part of the side that won the war in order to make that proclamation in the first place. And so it's right. not as it's not just a set of words that announces a reality. Being the very fact that he's coming back in victory is what makes it a proclamation. And in a lot of senses, the proclamation that we make in the Lord's Supper as participants, not necessarily as the person administering the supper, there's a whole different discussion that can happen there. But the part, the proclamation that I make and that you make every Lord's Day that we take the, um, take the cup and drink and eat the bread is a proclamation of victory in the victory that we participate in. And it wouldn't be a proclamation of victory if it wasn't a victory we were participating in. And that's what makes the Lord's Supper so exceptional as an act of worship. Because the whole gospel is in the Lord's Supper, if we understand it rightly. So the bread and the wine are symbols of the work of Christ on the cross, saving us by sacrifice of his blood and his body. The offering and distribution of the bread and wine tell us that Christ is freely offered to all who receive him. And when we receive those elements, eating and drinking, they're symbols of faith, receiving Christ and being nourished by him into eternal life. It's really glorious. So I hate that it can become this kind of rote thing that's just just kind of like memorializing yeah. when it's so much more than that. And there's nothing in my estimation, there's no other act of worship that we do, especially on the Lord's Day, that involves all of our senses that God has given us, like explicitly commanded for us uniting all these different sensory perspectives that we have together with this group of people doing this at the same time that is special and set apart. So it really should hold like this ultimate, really special place. And so to go all the way back around to like what you're saying about the mode in which we do that, that's why I think the the debate can be so fierce because this is a really special thing. It's not just a kind of a throwaway activity and it's one thing that the Lord has explicitly commanded and given us this really strong procedural emphasis. Yeah. Yeah. So to go back to the history, right? So in the medieval church, the, the, the medieval Roman Catholic church had started to make a practice where they distributed the bread to the, to the laity, but they withheld the cup and what they called this was communion in one kind. And one of the major critiques and one of the major, um, lines of attack that the reformers engaged in was they wanted to get the cup back into the hands of the, the average person. So the, the administration of the supper was still exclusively for the ordained ministers. Um, but they wanted the, the congregation to drink of the cup as well. And so, you know, I think in our current context, a lot of times we sort of think that like the form that the elements take is, um, irrelevant right so we're not going to get into it but there's a a big debate about can it be wine 
or grape juice? Can it be either? Does it have to be one or the other? Um, just to put my cards on the table, I don't think it's all that important whether the grape juice has alcohol in it or not. And that's really the only difference between wine and grape juice is the presence of alcohol. Um, the same right. way, I don't think it's all that important whether the bread has leaven in it or not. And that's the only difference between leavened and unleavened bread is leaven. So, um, so there's that. So we could, we could do a show on that. We may, we're not going to tonight, but another, um, another sort of hot debate is the idea of intinction. Can you tell me what intinction is, Jesse? Yeah. So here's what I, how I describe it in kind of a classical sense, so to speak. So intinction would be the procedure of receiving the Lord's Supper by dipping the bread into the cup. Instead of eating the bread and drinking the cup, you would, you're going to eat the wine or the grape juice that's saturated in the right. bread itself. It's kind of like a two for one. It's a combo deal. Yeah. And in my experience, most churches that do this do it as a matter of convenience. I've never heard a theological reason in favor of intinction. Right. There's never, I've never, not even historically have I ever even seen an argument saying that intinction somehow better represents what was going on in the Lord's Supper. And to be honest with you, you might be able to make an argument because a lot of times in Jewish culture, it was regular to dip bread into things and eat them that way. Right. Um, I don't think they did that with wine and we definitely don't, they definitely didn't do that with wine at the Last Supper. But this is almost exclusively a matter of convenience, right? It's easier and less messy to have everybody file through, get a little piece of bread, dip it in the in the common cup and eat it. There's less germs, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's the same basic reasoning that was being used to withhold the cup during um, the era preceding the Reformation, right? They didn't want to give the cup to the laity because they might spill it. There's plagues, and we don't really know how <laughs> germs work, but we know that when people share stuff, more people tend to get sick. Right. So they were. This is why we can't have nice exactly. things. Exactly. So as a matter of convenience, they were altering the Lord's Supper. They were changing the form that it took, not on theological grounds, but on the grounds that um, it was more convenient or it was more expedient or for some other pragmatic reason. And intention strikes me as basically the same thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think most of the common arguments are just logistically the biblical procedure takes too right. long for certain congregations or in the context of certain services. I haven't heard anybody say, well, I think this is a better representation or that we're on stronger theological ground to make this change. The thing about intention for me is just that Christ himself gave like really specific procedural instructions on this. Right. This is not something that's prone to a lot of ambiguity. So I would say we should ask, why are we doing this yeah. again? Like, is it, if it's just a matter of convenience, we ought to ask, why is it necessary for us to make the change? Because it's curious to me that any Bible-believing church would want to administer the sacrament in a way that is different from Jesus' intention. Right. So the question has to be, do we think we're improving upon it? Or if we think it is safe to disregard the Bible here, why? You, you definitely do not want to disregard what God has explicitly commanded. So this is like way outside the bounds of like the medium mode of like baptism, for instance, or, or other kind of open-handed debates. This for me is, is Jesus gave specific instructions. He took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. He passed the cup saying, drink of it. So it just seems to me like this is on the face, guys. Like this is the way that we should get after yeah. it. So I understand why people get fired up against intention. I don't know what the counter argument is for why you get equally impassioned for yeah, it and from a biblical perspective. The, um, the answer that I usually have is something like, well, the Bible doesn't say we have to do it this way. And so, so people who normally under all normal circumstances would be regulative principle people. Right. Right. Suddenly become normative principle people because of a matter that they need something to be convenient, I guess. Right. That's what, that's what concerns me. It's that swap from Rick, because this is like regulative principle 101, right. isn't it? Like it says this, we do it. It's very clear. Like you don't even have to necessarily draw good and necessary consequence or go, although I guess to your point, you could, because it doesn't say specifically hand out this, wait, say something, pray, right. hand out this, <laughs> play a song, pray. Yeah. And so I think, um, too, like people make, so Scott Clark, our Scott Clark makes an argument against using the little individual cups, right? He makes an argument along the same lines for a common cup that it has to do with the language of a single cup. This cup is not these cups, right? He makes that argument. 
Right. And maybe there's some merit there. I don't know. But when I look at it, um, there's two features that I think really kind of mandate against, or I should say mitigate against the idea of intention is first the bread and the wine signify different things. Right. So when we go to Paul's, um, when we look at Christ's teaching and we look at when Paul sort of reteaches it, the cup or the, the, the bread is Christ's body broken, right? This is my body broken for you. I know that that certain pastors say broken for you. Some don't, but the, the idea that the bread signifies his body and that his body was broken is one thing signified. And then Christ is really clear. I think it's in Luke, but he says this cup is the new, is the new covenant in my blood. Right. So the body, the body represents the actual or the bread represents what's going on on the cross on a physical level. And the cup represents what's going on on the cross on a spiritual level. His body is broken on the cross in order to establish the new covenant. When we do intinction, what we do is we take those two, two things that are signifying separate but related things and we fuse them together into one symbol. I want to say two things. Can I first admit something to you about a pet peeve of sure. mine that just just came up in this oh, conversation? Oh, no. What did I do? No, no, no. It's Let's talk about the use of the word broken here because I, I'm with you in the King James in particular. Everything in the Synoptic Gospels is translated, this is my body broken for you. However, that's the only place every in almost every other translation you find given. And so when people, you're not doing this, but when people just go with broken because there's a crossover language, breaking bread, and then there's the body given. But you know, like part of the prophecy about Christ was that no bones would be broken. There is reference in the Psalms, of course, to being joints being out of joint. But part of this whole thing is that he is the lamb whose body is not broken in the sense of his bones being crushed or dislocated in that sense. So I always kind of, I always get like a little bit bristled on the inside when there's like a lot of broken language talk. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And because we can definitely take uh, that kind of connection too far. Yes. Right? That's what um, happens. But the fact is that his body was broken, right? Not, not bones were not broken, but his right. body was damaged and destroyed, right? He was crushed yeah, that's a better way for of our iniquity. It. He was bruised for our yes. iniquity. He's, Yes. By his wounds, we are healed. So yes. no matter what language you're using, we can always stretch language further than it needs to go. But what the bread represents and what the bread signifies is the physical death and suffering of Christ on the cross. I agree and with the that. Blood, I... The blood signifies the covenant that was made, or the wine signifies the covenant that was made by that breaking on the cross. Right. That, I totally agree with that. I think that a lot of time people are, they think they're quoting that verse, right. but they're actually quoting it yeah. wrong. It, it says, this is my body given. And I think given is a more, is a closer translation and is eminently more meaningful than than broken, which is, is not the word used there. So the second thing I want to say is, I, I'm listening to what you're saying about when we merge these two elements together. And here's how I understand why that can be so harmful, because this we're t- Christ is taking the Passover meal and he's impounding it with all this glorious new revelation about the new covenant. The Passover was a slow meal. It was meant for you to like eat and converse and to take every element in that meal and to metabolize, no pun intended, what it meant to be thoughtful and to meditate on that. So when we try to make the Lord's Supper quicker, I always kind of bristle yeah. against that as well. And, and part of that is the logistical convenience of saying we don't have two elements and spend time kind of focusing on them. It's, it's all kind of just this sweeping up of this one right. kind of experience. And not only is it harmful because you're like you said, you're not focusing on each of the two separate elements, which are insanely important. And so we could spend a lifetime thinking and meditating just on the bread and just on the cup. So we should take our time. Like we should really, I think, have this time in our services, especially I love the Presbyterian kind of liturgy that makes the Lord's Supper, kind of the zenith of the service. Like everything moves up as this grand crescendo to this moment. And then there's this kind of pause and it's a pregnant pause where we take the cup and we take the bread and we think and we examine ourselves. That is lovely. Like we should, we shouldn't try to be like moving past that as quickly as yeah. we can. So especially in our culture, there's something to be said for slowing down because we all eat fast yeah. anyway. 
So to have this supper, if it really is a communing around the table where we, we've gotten rid of this old idea that up front we need to have this altar and instead, like that's outmooted. Instead, in the new covenant, we've got a table and we're all sitting and facing one another with Christ at the head. We need to like really relish yeah. in that and take our time to move through it. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, it's interesting. This, my desire to do this episode, um, came from a conversation I was having with someone online who I know listens to the show. Um, and he said he didn't want to talk about it. And so I just decided he was going to listen to me talk about it. And, um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to say this to be inflammatory, but intinction in more than one way, right? We already talked about one way, but in more than one way is much closer to the concept and the issues going on in the medieval church than um, you might realize. So we talked about how in the medieval church, they, they changed the way that the cup was administered out of convenience. But on top of that, the arguments, the other arguments that I've heard about why intinction is acceptable all circulate around the fact that, well, I'm still, I still have wine going into my mouth and I still have bread going into my mouth. So what's the difference? Well, the, the form that the elements take, you're not, you haven't taken communion just because you happen to put bread and wine in your mouth, right? It's not automatic. So that's the connection, right? Intinction is not okay. Not because you're some, there's some physical difference in the wine when it's soaked into bread. I mean, there's, you're not drinking. So you're not obeying the command to, to drink as often as you drink this, do so in remembrance. I mean, you're not obeying that command on just a surface level. But getting the elements in your mouth is not the central part of communion, right? The central part of communion is participating in faith in obedience to what Christ has commanded, right? Right. So that's exactly yeah, the heart. So of it. I want to just commend to our listeners an article um, written by Joe Thorne. Um, on he wrote it on his blog but he also um it looks like it also got posted to the gospel coalition at one point and the article is called the lord's supper sip it don't dip it and it's an article um (laughs) it's an article basically going through a lot of the things that we've talked about here and he makes two really strong points that i want to um i want to just highlight so he um he talks about how the command is to eat and to drink, right? So we've talked at length here about that, that there's a command to eat and a command to drink and eating a bread, a piece of bread soaked in wine is not the same thing as drinking wine. So just on a surface level. But this point I think is really strong and I'm going to just read um, this whole paragraph. He says, just as the Paschal lamb was sacrificed, it's blood being poured out in death. So Jesus presents the Lord's Supper as a separation of blood and body. This separation itself signifies death and points explicitly to the death of Jesus. So what he's saying there is that Christ's death is um, is the antitype or the fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice, of all the sacrifice in the Old Testament. And the key feature of the sacrifice for sin was that all of the blood was drained out of the body of the Lamb. And then the blood was taken into the Holy of Holies and they did something with the blood and usually the whole body was burned, right? Or in some sacrifices, the body would be cooked and the the people who are making the sacrifice would eat it. Well, what do we do? We eat the bread, which is the body. We drink the wine, which is the blood. But more than that, the, the act of separating the blood from the body and not leaving them combined was central to the theology of the Old Testament sacrificial system. So if we evacuate that by recombining those elements, we've erased that signification. So it, right. we have to be really careful. And this is where, just to loop back a little bit to the wine versus grape juice thing, is the central thing we need to think about, I think, in all of these questions about kind of the mode, the externals of the Lord's Supper, the form it takes, the elements we use, is what is being signified and how does what we are doing properly or improperly signify that? Right. So Dr. Pepper has grape juice in it. So technically it's the fruit of the vine, but it's a sweet sugary drink that um, is made in order to enjoy. That's the purpose of it. It doesn't have nutritional value. It's just there to enjoy. Does that really signify the blood sacrifice of Christ on the cross? Probably not. Right. On the same level, like Calvin says, like whether you use white wine or red wine isn't really all that important. But given the um, given the signification of blood, I would say that red wine is probably better than white wine, right? 
Right. So that's what I think we need that's to think fair. about. That's what I want to leave people with in this conversation is, you know, we can do circles linguistically. I can make a great argument uh, linguistically that we really need to be using um, champagne instead of wine. Because the word, the Hebrew word for wine and the Greek word, which was probably derived from the Hebrew word, has the idea of bubbly, effervescent, right? That's what the word is, is rooted right. on. So wine isn't effervescent, but champagne is. So I could make that argument. It's a dumb argument, right? The fact right. that the word unleavened is used doesn't necessarily indicate that we have to use unleavened bread, Right. Or I should say the right. converse. The fact that the, the standard word for bread is used doesn't necessarily mean that we are allowed to use leavened bread. Um, so we have to ask these questions. What is being signified and how does our practice and the elements we choose to use properly or improperly signify that? And how fitting is it for those things to be used to make that signification? In Jesus' ministry, he's constantly contradicting what we think it means to live yeah. rightly. So when he comes to the disciples, especially after his death, of course, he's coming to those who are the ones that are actually marked for death. When he stands before Pilate, ironically, on trial, it's not he who's on trial, but essentially everybody else yeah. in identifying him. And this, to me, is the same type of thing. It's not that we can do any great harm, so to speak, to the Lord's Supper. It's what it says actually about us and how we take it, and how we understand what right. it means. So that's why the debate about intinction does matter, because it always matters greatly how we respond to the clear teaching of our Lord. And we should joyfully desire to fully obey the scriptures and to fearfully tremble at the thought of doing the opposite yeah. of what it says. So the Lord's Supper is important to the life of the church. And to say that this is a silly debate or waste our time raises the questions about what we think is important to the spiritual life and health of our churches. So I would encourage everybody to start developing a really robust theology about what the Lord's Supper means. And if we haven't spent some time to think about it, then we really ought to, because the scripture sets for us a really strong precedent of asking questions of why we do yeah. things. And so that, that's the whole reason the Lord allows for that in the Passover meal for Israel. He says, your children are going to ask, what do you mean by this service? Why do we eat the unleavened bread? And in Exodus, he lays out, this is what you should right. say. And this should be the same for the Lord's Supper. So I can't imagine the task, because I'm not a parent, of describing this and teaching a child, because it's a really daunting task to explain this. It's complicated enough in our yeah. conversation to really feel like you put your arms all the way around this concept. But that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile and that we should really, you know, like you never graduate from this particular truth. So we just kind of let ourselves sink more and more deeply into it and try to understand what it means and how to best live yeah. it out. It's super important. Yeah, I couldn't say it any better myself. So, um, Jesse... We're coming up on the end of our time here, but yeah, we are. if someone has Buddy the elf Christmas and wants to share a story with us, or <laughs> if the person that I made listen to me, even though he said he doesn't want to talk about it, wants to call and leave an angry voicemail, how would they do that? You can call 607-444-2767. And I'm hoping that people will take us up on this and leave some voicemails that we can play on the cast about their experiences with saying Merry Christmas or it, it receiving a Merry Christmas with genuine yes. authenticity. And we keep on saying this, but I want to reaffirm it. We have the equipment to be able to play voicemails, but I have not figured out how to do it yet. So um, Jesse will be visiting New Hampshire for Christmas this year. Um, so I'm hoping that we're going to be able to sit down in the same room and get our heads around we're going to make it around happen. how the technology works. Um, and we're looking forward to being able to do some more with the voicemails in the new year. It's going to be great. So call. So we have like this whole backlog so we can just play. That way you're not listening to our lame voices the exactly. entire time. You can hear somebody else. Yes, you can change. listen to someone else's lame voice. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Just like that. That I'm pretty sure inspired a lot of people to put down yeah. their phones. <laughs> so Jesse, do you have any final closing words for us? I'm actually just pretty stoked, as usual, to get up from this conversation and think about the Lord's Supper again. I don't know. It can become rote. I kind of wish uh, we and my church did it a little bit more often. But there's something about the Lord's Supper that I've realized as I've gotten older that is not just about me. In the sense that it's not even just about the fellowship, which is a part of it. It's not about what I do or to make sure that I'm doing the right things. There's also part of this about what the Lord desires as a means of grace to impart into his people. And it is like a tremendously special thing. Like all the Lord's days are sanctioned. That's the day the Lord has given us to gather. 
But when my congregation celebrates the supper, I almost feel like there's something extra yeah. cool and special about that. Sunday. I do. Does that make yeah, sense? I look forward to it every single month. Yeah. And I just want to grow in that anticipation that this is something where God has fused the past, the present and the future that we look back to Christ's death. We celebrate it now by, by bringing together, coalescing all of these different senses, taste, smell, sight, hearing. And then we anticipate that this, there's going to be a meal, the marriage supper of the lamb, that's going to be even better. And maybe they'll serve wine there. I'm sure they will. All right. Well, I think that this has been the definitive anti-intention podcast. <laughs> have we ever done a non-definitive episode? I think like every episode we say it's definitive in some sense. No, every, everything we just we we take on a subject and then we right. close it. So there it will never down. be controversy over intention or um, nope. transubstantiation ever again. I can't see how we have not been abundantly <laughs> clear. Well, that just about does it. Until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.